it is both time for a classic episode and it is the start of our season of Halloween programming. Uh, there was recently a loss in the Disney family, uh, Imagineer Exitensio, who had a hand in many of the projects in the Disney parks and really impacted the magic that lives there in many ways, uh, recently died. So to honor him and remember him, we are going to air our two episodes about the development and building of Disneyland's Haunted Mansion. Yeah, these will appear over the, this Saturday and next Saturday. And one quick note, when we recorded this episode, a lot of Holly's research was from the original edition of the book about the mansion's history by Jason Sorrell. And that one had a little error in it. Initially, Evergreen House in Baltimore was cited as the architectural inspiration for Disneyland's Haunted Mansion. But it's actually the Shipley Lydecker House, also in Baltimore, that sparked the design. So keep that in mind as you listen. And now take a little trip to Disneyland with us. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Today we are talking about a subject admittedly very near and dear to my heart, mm-hmm. and one that I think it uh, might startle people initially to think about it as a history item, but it really has quite a fascinating history all of its own, and that is Disneyland's Haunted Mansion. For those of you at home, which is everyone. <laughs> Maybe not. They might be on the go. Maybe so. When people who are not here yeah. in the room with us, <laughs> which is everyone but you and me and, and our producer, Noel, uh... Holly has on a Haunted Mansion t-shirt. I do. I have on my Haunted Mansion shirt. I have on my Haunted Mansion ring. I really love the Haunted Mansion. My house has a lot of Haunted Mansion theming. Um, and it is one of those things that when you read about the history of how this project came to fruition, it's a little bit enlightening. Uh, and it's uh, it sort of creates, for me, I know kind of a lens through which uh, viewing, like, some of the trials and tribulations that happen in, like, anyone's modern day-to-day work life mm-hmm. in kind of a, a a different way. And it gives it a perspective of, like, no, everybody has these issues. You know, like, if you have a project that's taking forever, if you have, like, a thing that you want to do, but you get excited and then it gets put away and it never comes to fruition. Those things happen all the time to everybody. And I think... Uh, you know, we don't, because the Disney company has become so huge, we don't think about that ever having happened in the no. context of Disney, but in fact, it was happening all the time. Well, and I also love this story because of like the, the historic visual effects yeah. techniques that were used. Yeah. And, and how many of them still hold up <laughs> and are in use today. Yes. So uh, for younger listeners, it's probably really easy to think about Disneyland and Walt Disney World as places that have been around forever, but they really haven't. Uh, Disneyland has only been around since the 1950s and Disney World opened in the early 1970s. But the ideas for those parks go back quite a bit further. One of the iconic attractions at all Disney parks is the Haunted Mansion. And as any Disney file will tell you, Each attraction in the parks has its own story, but the Haunted Mansion's history is particularly steeped in legends, partly because of the supernatural theming, 
uh, which leads to all kinds of ghost stories and horror. Yeah, and as I was saying earlier, the story of Disneyland and the development of the mansion is also a really good one to look at because it showcases how, um, you know, even great success has a lot of failure along the way. I think, um, you know, Walt Disney has become so legend- legendary as a visionary that a lot of the struggles that his projects went through and a lot of the struggles that he went through trying to get things done, uh, they get glossed over or they get overlooked completely. But he had a lot of bumpy rides. And regardless of whether you view him and the Disney company in a positive or negative light, and that's like almost could be a podcast on its own, uh, because there are people, it's very polarizing for some people. Uh, but the sheer number of achievements that he managed in his life is really impressive. But when you actually look at how it all happened, a lot of the stories of that great success, they have nothing to do with luck or, you know, blind good fortune. They're really like the result of hard work and perseverance and really pushing through, uh, which I think is important to remember. Because, again, it's become such a huge company. We think of it as just being a powerful entity and we forget that it there were baby steps in the beginning. Yeah. Well, for many people alive today, Disney has always been a juggernaut. Yeah. For the entirety of their existence. Yeah. It was not always a juggernaut. No, not at all. And even the project of the Haunted Mansion had many stops and starts, uh, both with and without Walt. So we're going to first start it off by talking about uh, a quick overview of kind of the birth of Disneyland. Right. In 1951, Disney had an idea for a park to give families something to do to get together in Southern California. His first plan was to make a park in Burbank across the street from the Disney Studios. Even in the first series of concept sketches that Walt asked director Harper Goff to do, there was always a haunted house in all of them. And it first started as a part of a group that also had a church and a graveyard. And on December 16th of 1952, Walt Disney Incorporated was founded by Disney to build the park. Uh, the name changed almost immediately to WED Enterprises. Uh, some people will say WED. And the WED stands for Walter Elias Disney. But today we actually know that entity as the, as Walt Disney Imagineering. So it went through a few name changes, but it originally started in 1952 to build Disneyland. Uh, and that new company was actually staffed up with a lot of the artists and the visionaries from Walt's movie studio, even though they had not worked on a theme park before. Uh, and that hire to bring in movie industry people and animators may seem odd when you think about it, but Walt's whole idea was that they were going to be telling stories in three dimensions instead of two. And since story was always going to be the focus, professional storytellers to him seemed like the exact right people for these jobs. These ideas quickly became way too big for the 11-acre plot of land that he initially had in mind. So the focus shifted to Los Angeles, In 1953, Walt hired the Stanford Research Institute to survey Los Angeles and the surrounding area for a 100-acre site that would be suitable for what he and the WED team had in mind. And that's how they found Disneyland's home. It was a 160-acre orange grove in Anaheim, and this location met all of Walt's requirements. It had to be freeway accessible, adjacent to or within Los Angeles, and affordable. 
Yeah, and uh, you know, nowadays the Disney company is huge. That is so huge that it's really hard for most people, and even me, to think about it ever having shallow pockets. Uh, but at the time, it was a very different story. Uh, you know, Walt was really struggling to figure out how he was going to finance this huge vision of his and to build a theme park. And it actually led to the genesis of the television series, Walt Disney's Disneyland. Uh, that show came out of the need for funding. And Walt struck a deal with ABC in 1954 that he would for- host for them this hour-long weekly series, uh, which was about Disneyland and also about sort of, um, you know, exploration of concepts and society and technology and storytelling. Uh, and in exchange for him hosting this, ABC was funding the construction of the theme park project. And just as a side note, ABC eventually became part of the Disney company uh, decades down the road. Yeah. So it was a partnership that started in the 50s, but went on for a long time. And now, uh, now they're the same they're, thing. They're all together. So once the funding and location were secured, construction started and went on at a really breakneck pace. They broke ground on July 21st, 1954, and just a year later, on July 15th, 1955, Disneyland opened to the public. Uh, It cost an estimated $17 million to build. Which may not... It sounds like a lot, but I think nowadays, if a similar project were built, it would be in the billions and billions. Yeah, that was seventeen million nineteen fifty-five dollars. So it was a lot of money. Uh, and opening day, any account you read of it, it sounds insane. Uh, there was so much anticipation leading up to the opening of the park because Disney, at this point, had a successful animation studio. He had already made a name for himself in terms of entertainment. Uh, and so many people were so excited at this thought of an entire park devoted to this concept of, you know, storytelling and animation that they were even using counterfeit tickets to get in. Uh, the park was overcrowded way past probably what was a smart capacity. The temperature was a problem. They were in the middle of a heat wave in California and it was 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, and on top of it being super hot, there was a plumber strike going on. So not all of the water fountains had been hooked up so people couldn't get a quick drink of water to help deal with the heat. Um, and there was fresh asphalt uh, that had been poured as late as the night before the park opened, and it hadn't all cured properly because of the heat conditions. And so there uh, are stories of people's shoes sinking into the asphalt uh, because it had this weird rubbery texture to it, uh, but it was sticky. But even though uh, it was a bumpy opening day, and was super overcrowded. And a few weeks after it, things were still a little bit crazy. But the the problems got ironed out and things picked up. And pretty quickly, the park became really, really popular. But if you look at a map from those first days, you'll see that New Orleans Square, which is the area where the Haunted Mansion lives, is not there. That spot on the, ma- the map is blank. So even though Walt had been interested in a haunted house from the absolute earliest meetings with Harper Goff, It wasn't part of the initial launch, and it wasn't long before Walt's mind turned back to the haunted house uh, that had been part of the Disneyland original plan. Yeah, uh, once the park did get past those initial bumps, it really became apparent that it was going to have to expand quickly to meet demand. Uh, And so Walt went right back to that haunted house idea. In 1957, Walt put a studio animator named Ken Anderson in charge of the project. 
Because Ken had worked on Mr. Toad's Wild Ride and Snow White's Scary Adventures, which are both kind of so-called dark rides because they have a lot of low-light trickery and effects, he was the natural choice to helm the haunting of what would soon become the New Orleans Square section of the park. And while Ken was working on research for this project, Walt uh, went public with the news of the expansion. He talked about all of the things they were going to add to this new New Orleans Square area. And he even told a BBC interviewer in 1958 that he was building a retirement home for ghosts who may have been displaced from their original haunts during the war. So he was kind of trying to contextualize the concept to um, being as he was in Great Britain at the time and say, no, you know, all the bombings and everything. There are lots of ghosts that don't have a place to go. I'm building them a place to go. Just kind of silly and odd. And but also endearing. Yeah. I, I don't know how I would feel about that if I were living in Britain in 1958. I don't know how I would feel about it if I were the interviewer either. Right. <laughs> like, like, wait, you're doing you're what? Doing what? <laughs> but you know... Let's talk about Hogwarts again. What if something happened to Hogwarts? Where would all those ghosts go? Yeah. So Walt kept detailing his plans for a park expansion with various news outlets, including shops and restaurants that would join the haunted house in this newly defined area of the park. And Ken kept looking for design inspirations. So they knew from the outset that they wanted to have this kind of Old South feel to the the area uh, that would become New Orleans Square. And so Anderson sought out Louisiana plantation houses for design inspiration. Uh, you know, they knew they wanted this antebellum look. But it turned out that the the house that really sort of provided the most inspiration for um, the Haunted Mansion that's in Disneyland, other ones have different architectural styles, uh, it was actually a house that is on North Charles Street in Baltimore, Maryland, called the Evergreen House. And this is a house that had been bequeathed to John Hopkins University in 1942. Uh, and it really did provide the picture-perfect image of what Anderson and Disney had in mind. And the Disneyland Haunted Mansion bears a really strong resemblance to the Evergreen House. In all the artist's concept sketches for the house up to 1958, the house was dilapidated and broken down with this sort of overgrown, unkempt landscape, which is really what you would probably expect for a haunted house. But this approach really didn't go over well with Walt. Uh, he couldn't reconcile having this broken down house in any kind of style settled within the otherwise pristine surroundings of Disneyland. So there's a now famous quote, which I also find so charming. Uh, this is from Walt, and he said, We'll take care of the outside and let the ghosts take care of the inside. Uh, so no matter how haunted the house was going to be, he was pretty insistent that it have a perfectly groomed in- exterior. And it, there was disagreement about it, but rather than dig in on this issue of the exterior design, Ken Anderson just figured he would move over and focus on interior for a while, and they would kind of table that discussion. And I'm sure it will come as a surprise to none of our listeners to hear that one of the major inspirations for the Haunted Mansion was the Winchester Mystery House. Uh, Anderson had actually toured the Winchester House in San Jose on a weekend getaway while this issue of pristine versus ramshackle exterior had been debated. And, uh, you know, almost immediately upon the tour, uh, he realized that this was really what the inside of their Haunted Mansion should kind of look like, with these ideas of rooms that don't go places and architecture that doesn't always make sense together. Uh, because as we know, the Winchester House was uh, built by Mrs. Winchester, constantly under construction in an effort to uh, confuse spirits that might be angry 
about the Winchester family fortune coming from weapons that had killed them. So that's an interesting house. If anybody has not been there, I highly recommend the Winchester house. Don't we have an episode on it? We do. Uh, and it is it, it really clear if you've been to the Haunted Mansion that there's a link there stylistically. Mm-hmm. So let's get back to the Haunted Mansion. Yeah. True to this initial concept that the theme park was going to be a way to just tell stories in three dimensions. The Haunted Mansion had to have a compelling story to go in the attraction. But it took a few hits and misses uh, on this whole story to wind up with what guests are familiar with today. And even the ones that we're about to talk about are not really what guests are familiar with today. It took a lot. What are what are guests familiar with today if people have never gone? Are we going to talk about it at the end? We'll kind of get there at the end. Okay. We, we won't dig too deep into that because, you know got to experience it. It's super fun. Well, it, it's, but uh, but we will talk in in a bit about how things kind of ended up having to change. Uh, so some of the discarded stories are really fun, though. So Ken Anderson, bless him, was just working his tail off. He first put together uh, a story treatment that featured it. It was all centered around this sea captain named Captain Bartholomew Gore. And it was a walkthrough tour that was led by Gore's butler, Beauregard. And this story centered on the captain who, in some versions and in some notes, um, has the name Gideon Gorlieu and then earned the nickname of Gore through his behavior uh, because in these he brought his bride Priscilla to the mansion but Priscilla uh, was apparently a curious lass, and in this version that Anderson cooked up, her, um, her curiosity was her undoing. She foolishly opened this chest that she found in the attic and discovered that her beloved husband was in, flat, in fact Black Bart the pirate. Uh, and after she makes this discovery and has this revelation, she vanished. Uh, so in some versions of the story, poor Priscilla is bricked into the cellar by her husband, sort of cask of Amontillado style, if you've read that Edgar Allan Poe uh, short story. And in other versions uh, that Anderson worked on, she was either locked into a sea chest or thrown down a well. Uh, And her haunting of the captain in this story, uh, in this plot line, led him to hang himself in the house's rafters. And so all of this is part of what makes the haunting of the haunted house. The second version, which was also put together by Ken Anderson, featured this storyline that was intended to really draw guests in by marrying the real world with the mythology. And in this version, the tour guide would explain to guests that the Disney company had moved an entire plantation mansion, which was Bloodmere Manor, to Disneyland to create an authentic centerpiece for New Orleans Square. But trickster spirits were forever wreaking havoc on the restoration of the house. Also featured in this tale was a deceased construction worker who haunted the site, which was abandoned after his untimely death. That one didn't hit either. (laughs) Back to the drawing board. And Anderson did a third approach. And this one was really a much lighter approach to the whole thing. It actually featured Walt Disney himself acting as a tour guide via pre-recorded tape segments. And he was leading guests to a ghost wedding. So it was a much simpler storyline. But that way they could incorporate lots of ghosts without having to work up lots of backstory for each of them. Because they were all just attendants at this wedding. His fourth story idea took its inspiration from the 1949 Disney animated feature, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. The second part of the film was an adaptation of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And Anderson thought the story needed to have the headless horseman provide sort of fertile ground for this haunted mansion storyline. 
So a great deal of this treatment involved using Foley effects to create the sound of the horseman's hoofbeats following guests along their tour. I'm imagining it like Monty Python, which would not be funny, or it would not be scary. It would be very silly. Well, that scary and silly comes up later on. So the wedding concept was also there in this idea, and the guests were famous monsters like Frankenstein's monster and Dracula. The bride, Mademoiselle Vampire, would get a case of the jitters, not sure whether she wanted to marry Monsieur Boogeyman. And just as the chaos was reaching a fever pitch, a tour guide would escort the park guests outside to safety. And this fourth version of the story was the one that was approved to go forward. Although, if you are a fan of the attraction, you will note that that is not the story you see on the ride. Nope. Uh, There's a part of me that wishes we could go to an alternate history and see that version because it sounds really fun. I'm just picturing this panicky vampire bride. Uh, and allegedly, uh, the escape was going to be through one of the fireplaces. Ah. Which could have been a potentially really cool effect. Uh, Almost from the moment that Walt decided to expand Disneyland and build the Haunted Mansion, he had designers working on ideas for the detail elements of the attraction while Ken Anderson focused on the structural design. Yeah, he had had lots of concept sketches being made throughout, and as all of these different storylines were being put together, some of them were getting sketch treatments. But uh, as they were settling on this fourth storyline of the wedding, uh, in 1959, Walt put together what became a really famous two-man team uh, that generated many of the effects and moments that really make the Haunted Mansion a crowd favorite even today. Yale Gracie was a background artist and model builder, and Rolly Crump, which is a nickname for Roland, had been working at the studios as an in-betweener. Crump had this fondness for creating kinetic sculpture, so odd mobiles and other kind of pieces of moving art. I love those, by the way. And the story goes that Walt thought these two had just the right crossover of interests to make an ideal pairing to create the illusions that a haunted house attraction would need. And, uh, this pair of artists spent basically all of 1959 holed up together. Uh, they were in on one floor of a building, uh, just reading ghost stories. They were testing out illusions that they were coming up with together. Uh, and when Crump talks about it, he routinely credits Gracie as being like the idea man. And then he would start to embellish and expand on them and they would refine all of this together. So it sounded like it was it really was a very fruitful and pretty enjoyable pairing. Um, I think that's clear from the story we're about to tell. Yeah, the pair became really, really well known for their fantastical exploits and um, for their prankishness. Yeah. <laughs> In Jason Sorrell's book about the Haunted Mansion's history, Rolly Crump tells the story of an incident that was created by all of this experimenting combined with with pranking. Yale had all his ghosts and magic strewn throughout the room. Once we got a call from personnel asking us to leave the lights on because the janitors didn't want to come in if it was dark. Well, we did, but we rigged the room. We put in an infrared beam, and when it was tripped, the room went to blacklight and all the ghost effects came on. When we came in the next morning, all the effects were still running and there was a broom in the center of the floor. Personnel called and said, you'll have to clean your own room because the janitors won't go in there anymore. Those rotten boys. I know. <laughs> it is so like the pranks you would expect of like a teenage kid. 
So one of the interesting things uh, and historically significant things about the work that Gracie and Crump were doing together is that even though they were put together uh, to create cutting edge effects, most of the tricks that they were employing were really, really old school. They both had an interest in magic tricks, and they used a lot of tricks that had been part of magic shows and theatrical sleight of hand for decades, including the illusion that uh, is known as Pepper's Ghost, which is from the mid-1800s. And that's uh, a setup where action that is taking place in an unseen area uh, that the audience can't see is reflected off a pane of glass that they can see, and it creates this look of translucent floating images that look like ghosts. And they used that. And that's still used in the Haunted Mansion today. Like, mm-hmm. a lot of the ghosts that you see are doing the Pepper's Ghost Illusion. Yeah. The year that Rolly Crump and Yale Gracie spent together in 1959 culminated in this demo show where they displayed a presentation of a version of the whole attraction. And this demo was a huge hodgepodge of tricks and ideas. And even though they were working with Anderson's fourth story plan involving the ghoulish wedding, they had brought in some elements from the abandoned plots as well, including the sea captain. Uh, The sea captain is... Uh, illusion is one that's talked about a lot. Uh, this illusion that the pair created involved a rain-soaked ghost showing up. There was water. There was a flooding effect in the room. The captain's doomed bride would materialize and the water would then recede and leave only these unearthly blobs of moisture behind it. And it is one of those super famous, uh, often spoken of moments that the people who witnessed it will still, in interviews, kind of wax rhapsodic about it and how it was one of the most amazing things they have ever seen in their lives. Um, and with that, we're actually going to cliffhang you a little bit. Yeah. Because well, the Haunted Mansion is rich, so we are taking two episodes. It is rich. And, and the... The moment of that we're pausing, there's kind of its own cliffhanger. This whole thing got tabled for a little while. Yeah, and we'll talk about how that all came to be uh, in our next episode, which is a follow-up. Hey, since uh, these episodes that we're sharing are past classics, uh, we have some updated information that will supersede the contact stuff you've heard before. If you want to email us, our email address is historypodcast at houseofworks.com, and you can find us across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History. You can also find us at mistinhistory.com, and you can visit our parent company, House of Works, at houseofworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 